Everybody is affected by hormones. Cycles affect us from, you know, the minute we're born to, to when we die. But fundamentally, you have phases throughout your life from puberty, fertility, menopause. But then within those, you have different experiences such as sex, metabolism, stress. And so really understanding the science was about saying, how do we create a business that helps deliver this basic information at scale? And technology was the best vehicle for that. Essentially, once you have a, a piece of technology, you can get it very widely available to people through device. And I think the major thing is just history has told us that women should be focused on the utility of their hormones around fertility rather than actually the power that they serve in understanding their everyday health and well-being. I'm Emily Bellet, the founder of Vestpod.com, a thriving community that financially empowers women, author of You're Not Broke, You're Pretty Rich, and host of The Wallet. Each week, I'll be sharing my best tips, inspiring you to take charge of your financial futures, and talking to an array of awesome guests from all walks of life. This week, we're tackling a new topic on the podcast, something you may think is completely unrelated to managing your finances. I wanted to speak with Amy for a long time, and with the launch of her new book, I thought this was just the perfect time to do so. Amy Thompson is the founder of Moody Month, the femtech app that helps us optimize our well-being with easy-to-achieve mood, fitness, and food advice, giving women the knowledge to supercharge their lives. Amy believes our moodiness shouldn't be suppressed or ignored. Instead, she feels that if we harness the knowledge of our cycles, we all have the potential to become superheroes. Having raised over £2 million with Moody Mounds, Amy is super passionate about rewriting the narrative around female-led businesses and highlighting the challenges women face when securing startup funding. Our lives are affected by hormones daily, which is why Amy's mission is all about digging deep into the science and leveraging tech to help her do so. Once we understand our cycles and how they affect us, we can start planning for our goals in life. I mean, how empowering is that? As well as her amazing research and ideas, Amy also shares her experience of raising the funds that have helped her to build her business ethically and sustainably, as well as her own personal finance story as an entrepreneur. I'd also like to say a quick thank you to our sponsor, PensionB. PensionB has helped over 400,000 customers to be pension confident. It enables savers to take control of their finances by helping them transfer their old pensions into one simple online plan. With Pension B, you can manage your pension like you manage your bank account. Check your real-time balance, see your projected retirement income, and set up contributions and withdrawals all from the palm of your hand. Plus, you'll get human support from your very own UK-based account manager, who has Pension B calls them Beekeeper. You can sign up to Pension B today with the names of your old pension providers in just five minutes. And if you're self-employed, you can start a new pension from scratch. As always, with investments, your capital is at risk. Please note that the information made available on this podcast is provided for educational purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. If you have any questions, you should seek advice from an independent financial advisor. Hi, Amy. Hi. How are you? Uh, I'm really good. I'm very excited about this discussion. <laughs> I'm really excited about having this conversation. It's been a long time coming. Yeah, no, long time. And actually, thanks to Mireille, who is, you know, your publisher, and she also worked on my book. She sent me your amazing book, Moody. That's, uh, I mean, we're recording this episode in, in February, but today we're publishing it 4th of March, and people can actually already order your book. You're the founder of Moody Months. We'll talk about that. I mean, you had a communications agency before. So I wanted to have you on the podcast to talk about money, of course, and funding, funding your own business, and also talk about hormones, because that's going to be really important in, you know, the way we behave. And, and I think that's going to have also a link on, on our own finances. So maybe if we just get started, can you tell me a little bit about maybe your, yourself and your journey before Moody? Yeah, absolutely. So... As you say, my background was that I, I started a business actually when I was very young. So my first business was a communications agency. It was before social media, before Instagram really existed. It was 2011. Um, I was 24 at the time. And I realized that there was a huge gap in communications at the time where brands needed to better understand how to use social media to communicate to an audience rather than just put advertisements on their Facebook pages. 
So we built a business around the idea that social media was a way of brands and audiences connecting in a more authentic and much more kind of scalable way. So that went really well. Um, our biggest clients were, you know, brands like Nike, who everyone's heard of. And I had the privilege of working, you know, globally all over the world. But for me, the, the interesting reality was firstly, how fast technologies were evolving and, you know, how we were using technologies in our better understanding of ourselves. So when you think about how brands use technology, they use technology to target you or talk to you or, you know, communicate something you might want. But what I realized was there's a much bigger aspect of how this data essentially can be utilized rather than selling you stuff to better understand yourself, almost like a mirror back to yourself. Like, could you see all the data that you have on, you know, your tracking on everything? And then that technology helps you make recommendations of things that are going to be good for your health and well-being. That was the kind of idea. And, and I realized I'd started a business in an industry that is not necessarily always an industry to be 100% proud of. I, I did find that, you know, working in, in brand and communications was, was amazing. And I owe a huge amount to that part of my career. But I did also feel that there were some ethical issues and some elements that needed to be addressed. And obviously, you see that happening at scale now with, you know, documentaries like, you know, The Big Hack, see really interesting things happening in and around kind of what are really data privacy issues that need to be considered now. I have integrated that into the next business and, and starting Moody came from two things. Firstly, the inspiration behind wanting to do something with more purpose and meaning. And secondly, because of my own hormonal journey. So you mentioned hormones and money and you mentioned hormones. The stress is the major thing, right? Yeah. So for me, the reason hormones were the kind of key to what I felt was the focus point for something around helping particularly women better understand their emotional, physical health through data was because I realized that women had been looked at from the perspective of fertility. So contraceptive or not getting pregnant, but also getting pregnant, right? How, how to understand your cycle, your period cycle from the perspective of this utility function, which is fertility. Whereas I believe that there was a much, much bigger opportunity here, which is to understand all the different patterns that happen by, yes, logging what you're feeling and then the technology helping you better understand patterns of those emotions, but also being able to reflect back existing science around how stress potentially could impact cycles. You know, looking for how actually we're looking at irregularity in that data rather than regularity. And stress was the starting point for me because it was what, and why my period stopped. <laughs> so hormones became the central core of my life because I suddenly didn't, I suddenly started learning all these new things about how the output, my, my behavior in work, my stress levels in work, my relationship stresses, my money stresses, because we were making lots and lots of money in the business. But when you have a business with, you know, global clients, you're never really making enough money. <laughs> you can always be making more and that pressure becomes more and more profound. It's not a personal wealth. It's actually keeping and maintaining the business at scale. So my period stopped and, and I realized that stress uh, from external factors has an effect on your everyday health and well-being. Yeah. And that's where Moody was really born. And and that was where the journey started in 2017. And here we are today in 2021. So, yeah, and I wrote a book about it. <laughs> <laughs> I looked at a few statistics and, and, and just if you, you know, you're not really aware about, you know, hormones, actually almost half of women say that hormones have negatively affected their overall well-being. And I was also reading another survey uh, of 2000 women suggesting that most or many of us are actually unaware of the potential implications of hormones, with 72% uh, only later understanding hormones to be the case uh, of adverse symptoms. So you started Moody based on, you know, your own story. I mean, how did, did then did you transform like maybe a vision uh, and the way you were using data and, and, and comms in your previous job to actually, you know, come up with this idea of Moody, launch the app and later down the line, write a book about hormones. You've become yeah. like this super specialist <laughs> about, about hormones. <laughs> yeah, well, I think to start answering that question, I think the reality comes down to Everyone is an expert on themselves, but we are really only at the behest of the knowledge we are given. So how hormones affect our everyday health and well-being ultimately is the knowledge that we are not given. So in school, you learn about 
your hormone cycle. So you learn about your periods and you often learn, which I think is extremely odd, how you could be impregnated by a man. <laughs> that is fundamentally, I mean, there, we could go down a complete rabbit hole of why that's fundamentally flawed, but um, it's it's more the, um, the reality that, you know, we are not told about even our mental health and the connection that hormones have. What we're given is very fundamental and rudimentary information about the function of estrogen potentially for women and testosterone for men. Now, what's really interesting about that and, and in the research and kind of in where I became a kind of, I guess, expert was that it affects everyone. And Every woman has a story. So, you know, you said 50% of women have been affected adversely by hormones. You know, th there is almost throughout life, if you, by the end of your life, if you don't have a story that relates to hormones, whether that be from pregnancy, menopause, puberty, you know, period, that there is going to be a story in your life health experience that relates to hormones. And yet we're given such little information about it. So if you're thinking about this as a business model, which I was doing at the time, because I wanted to help make sure that this business was sustainable. And I think it's also really important to identify the reason that we are creating businesses in this space rather than, you know, philanthropic research projects, which also are important, is that to really make change in the world, you have to prove that something has financial validity. That's the economic system in which we live. And again, I don't need to give you any more further explanation. If you can prove there is a financial value to someone inherently having this information, then you are going to be able to change, A, how people get the information, and B, everybody having access to it. It's like fundamental human rights. What are the things we should know about ourselves and what are the things we should have access to? And, you know, if you can try and get more and more people understanding this and at scale, and you don't necessarily have to get people paying lots of money, but paying a small amount of money to have an experience, which then contributes to a wider shared knowledge experience. So fundamental basis is everybody is affected by hormones. Cycles affect us from, you know, the minute we're born to, to when we die. But fundamentally, you have phases throughout your life from puberty, fertility, you know, menopause. But then within those, you have different experiences such as sex, metabolism, stress. And so really understanding the science was about saying, how do we create a business that helps deliver this basic information at scale? And technology was the best vehicle for that, for obvious reasons, because you can essentially, once you have a, a piece of technology, you can get it very widely available to people through device. So that was why we chose mobile. And I think the major thing is just history has told us that women should be focused on the utility of their hormones around fertility rather than actually the power that they serve in understanding their everyday health and well-being. And that is just simply the fact that the history books were written a very, very long time ago, and they were written ultimately by men. And actually, in the 1920s, when really the kind of major research into hormonal science started being developed, there was a huge amount that was done around proving that hormones actually were the proof that, you know, men and women were, or men were superior to women, because in theory, testosterone is this kind of idea of strength, it's morality, it's a it's a hormone that, you know, when they were testing it in chickens, uh, made chickens extra aggressive and strong, whereas estrogen was this kind of emotional hormone. And, you know, everything is this kind of repetition of the experience of, ah, so hormones are about men's strength, women's emotions. Strength is good, emotions is bad. And actually, when you then start to look at what's important now in, in 2021, Technology does logic and all the things that, you know, we historically used to value much, much better. And we've gendered that as male and female. But emotions are our biggest asset in the future because actually what we now know is that hormones don't just affect women or men. They affect everyone and they affect you in your sleep patterns, in your metabolism. You know, they affect every aspect of your life from even how you bond with a partner or with a, a, a newborn. So, you know, our, our lack of understanding in the field just is a demonstration that they've been overlooked, misunderstood, and also categorized in the wrong area, which is essentially just as a kind of thing you should understand around strength or fertility. 
So the focus for me is about making this information much more simple. So about how it can affect your everyday health and well-being, much more accessible through the vehicle of technology and at a price point, which is, you know, it is about the free information and the reason that the business model we designed was around recommendations of health and well-being was that, you know, it's a privilege to have the recommendation, but we've made it at a price point, which is, you know, in the app, it's, it's you know, £2.53 pounds a month, depending on which plan you go for. So we, we've aimed to make sure that you don't end up in a position where you don't have the ability to even get the baseline. So the baseline tracking technology is always free. And that was where the book came in because I realized that we built this brilliant piece of technology, which helps people understand their everyday health and well-being, particularly focused in this phase of the business on millennial women and particularly focused on cycles, period cycles. And also if you don't have them because of contraceptive. So it was that was our focus. And I felt really, um, aware that we needed to do more in getting the broader sense of what the science was and that's where a book is obviously a massive asset and again I probably don't need to explain that to you Emily because <laughs> you you have an amazing book which again does the same job of just explaining in simple terms how people can better understand the, the basis of this information. What I loved about about your book is you know I mean it was easy to understand but at the same time it was very thorough and complete and I had all the informations I wanted. I mean, I had three kids, so I was, you know, pregnant last year. So uh, how do I feel today is very different from, you know, 10 years ago and, and in terms of my hormones and everything was covered in the book, which was fantastic. I'd love to come back to your, you know, journey as an entrepreneur, but maybe if we, if we spend just a little bit of time and if you can explain me like the, the, the phases of, of the menstrual cycle, maybe, and wh when you're talking about embracing and reclaiming our, our moodiness, if you can explain that, uh, and then we'll talk about, you know, business and, and money. Of course. So there are four phases to your menstrual cycle. So what we did in Moody was we looked at how we would re, essentially rebrand these phases. <laughs> so in the most basic kind of terminology, you start in your bleed phase, right? So your bleed phase is the phase where quite obviously, you're bleeding, <laughs> but your also yeah. hormones begin to rise. So actually, what often happens in this phase is although you have the discomfort and the, you know, the frustration potentially of the, the physical attributes of your bleed phase, you also begin to regain or tend to regain energy because your estrogen goes from its lowest point, which is in your luteal phase pre your bleed, to its incremental incline towards ovulation. So you move from your bleed phase into your follicular phase, which we call your rise phase. And the reason we call it your rise phase is this is the phase where you're rising. You're ascending into and towards ovulation. But as an experience, if you're taking away this language of fertility, and the reason we took away the science language and we tried to rebrand these phases was because it felt like I wanted to know what it felt like for me as a woman. I didn't want to know the function all the time. So for, for us, we describe bleed as is a function to fair, but you then go into rise, which is this idea of ascending. So your estrogen is rising. And in that, you tend to feel your most optimal. You get very sharp. Um, your focus, your memory, your pain thresholds are higher. You tend to get less cravings. In other senses, you also can end up, often women experience more elevated speech. So you might be feeling a bit more anxious because you're rushing a bit more. It's almost like if you were describing estrogen as your mood booster, it's a bit like caffeine, like that you have, you have one coffee in the morning during your rise phase and it might feel triple the effect as it would if you have it in your, in your shift phase, which is post ovulation. So you go from your bleed to your follicular, which is your rise, and then you have ovulation. Ovulation is your kind of superhero. So it's three days is roughly the kind of ovulation window. Now, ovulation for women who are not trying to get pregnant or avoiding it is when you tend to be, I, we, I always describe it for myself as my goddess days. They're the days where I always feel, you even look different. So your hair is more illustrious, your skin tends to be really clear. And actually, it's really interesting because if you think about it in terms of the primal side of things, that's when you're attracting a mate. That's when you're kind of alluring. Like you are looking your sexiest and feeling your best and your strongest at that point. And then you have the post-ovulation. So we call this your shift phase. In terms of what shift means is essentially that is when your estrogen begins to deplete 
after your ovulation. And it does give you a sense of maybe more subdued. And as your progesterone, which is your, uh, what I call the sedating hormone, rises because your estrogen is lower, it tends to make you more calm. It tends to make you maybe a little bit more antisocial, might make you feel a bit more insular, a bit more of a sense that you want to stay in and be cozy. Thinking about this in context of the fact that everyone's been pretty much indoors all the time, I think that these phases have become almost more prominent. People have started to really notice when they're in their stride at the beginning of the month and then when they're maybe feeling as though they don't want to do as many zoom calls or they don't want to be as kind of you know extrovert in their social activities with friends by digital platforms as well as you know potentially in work and that's not to say that you should be mitigating what you're doing in that second half of your cycle you know we don't just suddenly turn into hermits and go inside but it is about being more mindful and kinder to yourself you know it's about the awareness brings this kind of self-awareness that at that point in your cycle, you suddenly can go, oh, okay, I understand. I'm going to feel a bit more sensitive. I might be a bit more irritable. I'm more likely to have an argument with my partner. And that's where you go from shift into what we call reflect, which is your luteal phase. So scientifically, it's called your luteal phase. And that's where your estrogen begins to hit its lowest point. Just before the onset of your bleed, you do get a little boost of testosterone, which tends to find for certain women that gives them a little couple of days of a little mood booster in, in between there, which gives you a little bit of extra energy. But as a general sense, you have this flow from your kind of high energy beginning of the month, your kind of optimal point, and then a little more introverted and a little bit more calm and slow paced in the second half. Obviously, there are different variabilities for different women, dependent on your cycle length, dependent on regularity. But as a general rule, these hormones have similar effects on, on the majority of women. So when in the book, when I was explaining it, rather than talking about them as this is what's happening, even though the science is there, I also wanted to explain the kind of emotional, physical, environmental sensitivities that you also have, which is which is basically the foundation of the app. So that's what the app does. It's not looking at functional. It's looking at emotional and symptom-based experiences. Because there are other things that when you start to layer into that, are you a woman that experiences cramps? Are you someone that experiences headaches? And as you start to log what you're actually experiencing in the app, it will begin to pick up those patterns and then reflect it back to you with signals the following month. So if it knows that you're likely to experience headaches in your luteal phase, it will start to show you the days where you're most likely to experience it in a kind of forecasting tool. So that was why the phases and hormones where for me, I was like, hang on, this is mad. We should learn this in school. <laughs> we should also learn, you know, the fact that your sex drive is affected by your phases. So when you feel not just sexy yourself, but feel like having sex, when you feel drawn to your partner, basically when also your sex drive is higher, but if your sex drive is, is lower throughout your entire cycle, then that's an indicator that something is potentially wrong and often it's linked to stress. So when you start to understand the basics of what these fluctuations look like across your phases, you then start to see when things start to flatten out and you don't start to see any kind of fluctuation, you know, as an average, you then start to tune in a little more to the things that might be causing that problem. So stress is a chemical response. It's a hormonal response. It's cortisol and adrenaline, and it's triggered by your adrenal glands. And when that happens, like with any chemical balance, if you are overstimulated with stress hormones, it has a knock-on effect to all the other intricate balances that you have inside your body, sleep, energy, your menstruation cycle, you know, all these things. The thing for women that's really positive is your menstruation cycle is something that you can very clearly tune into because it has a beginning and an end. So it starts with your bleed and it ends with your bleed. So that's the kind of like summary, I guess, or an executive summary of the science. But again, it's, it's coming from the perspective of emotional, physical health uh, rather than coming at it from the perspective of fertility. Yeah, and that's that. I mean, that has a huge impact on you know on on our lives. And I've I've lived without this having this information for maybe you know thirty five years. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but but now I try to take this into account. You know, when I when I have yeah big projects at work or I used to do a lot of public speaking. So you know, trying to to time these events and it, it just makes a huge difference. So by it's not really rewriting, but educating women uh, around their period and hormones. Now what you're also doing, I feel with Moody, is also rewriting 
the narrative around uh, female-led businesses and fundraising. So yeah. I know that's something quite different, but you, you wrote a, a big article about, you know, rewriting female funding narratives. And you're talking about gender disparity in, in startup funding. So We've read, I mean, there's amazing reports, I'll put them in the notes, but the Rose Review of Female Entrepreneurship highlighted that only one in three UK entrepreneurs is female. So there's a massive, you know, gender gap. It's harder for women to raise money and that has an impact, obviously, on, you know, the type of businesses they can work on and they can create. So I'd love to talk a little bit about that. And if you can give me an overview of, you know, the social landscape for yeah. female founders. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I can tie it back to this phases thing, right? So I'll outline the landscape, certainly, but I just think as a, as a personal tip and the thing that I've also taken a lot of strength from is understanding this science has helped me has helped me fundraise because it's allowed me to make decisions around the kinds of meetings and the kinds of approach I'm going to have. When I'm pre-ovulation, I don't tend to do too much prep for those meetings because I have a pitch. It's very like free-flowing. I don't tend to stumble as much. But actually, I've noticed that I get really vulnerable and I feel much more nervous. I get a lot more stressed out in the second half. That doesn't mean to say I don't still pitch during the second half of my cycle. All I do is I just, I do a lot more work to prepare. I'm, I don't tend to have as many in a day. So in the first half of my cycle, I might have three or four pitches in a day. Second half, I would do one a day maximum. This information is powerful in our ability to change systems by being more optimal in how we exist, show up and appear in the world. So that is another really important component to why this knowledge is power. For me, in terms of the landscape of funding, I have to admit I was very naive. So I, I raised, I've raised over 2 million in funding for the business because it costs a lot of money to build technology, especially if you're building it ethically and never selling the data, which we don't do. We're a recommendation engine. So, you know, if we wanted to sell the data to ads to be able to sell people women's stuff, that would be a lot easier. But I made it a very core principle that we didn't want to do that. I think being naive is good to some extent because you wouldn't really want to try and go into something if you really knew all the stress and all the pressure that you were going to put yourself under. However, good news is the landscape is changing. I first started raising money in 2017. And if you think about period tracking as really the first entry into what is now this big category of femtech, right? Femtech was a, a buzzword then, but it was created by you have period tracking you have you know brands like lv you know you have period trackers who are focused on fertility like natural cycles clue and then what i was saying in 2017 and i'm still saying today which is frustrating because people are still <laughs> but it's the truth is femtech shouldn't just be about fertility yeah so why is it that the only thing you think women are interested in within technology is their fertility. I, I don't understand that. And for me, what was really hard and a barrier was men simply didn't understand that there was, and when I would pitch, they would say, oh, period tracking is so, such a crowded market. And, you know, and I was like, but we're using, that's one piece of data we're using. We're not actually focused on just your period. We're not trying to predict that alone. We're trying to help make recommendations of mental, physical health support. So diet, exercise, things that you want in your day, but having to go to 20 different places for like how do we make it more easy for people to have a one-stop shop for their mind and body but those first pitches it was really angel investors that we ended up securing female angel investors and I was lucky that in 2017 I had built a network from the previous business and a certain amount of credibility that I could access female investor networks and women really got it it was a harder sell to men but it didn't mean that I didn't bring in male investors it was just, I was really naive to think that certainly when you look at the venture space, which there was, you know, I saw some stuff getting funded that was, you know, people with a, with a presentation and a great pitch. And that wasn't women. Women were not getting funded that early with just a great presentation and a pitch. It's starting to change now. There are some brilliant accelerator programs, which, you know, you've got Zinc, you've got Entrepreneur First. And you know, they have a focus on trying to, to help more female founders break through and accelerated programs are a brilliant route to funding. That wasn't the route that I went down, but it, it would have been arguably, I think you have to talk about mistakes. I wonder whether now 
I would always recommend to anyone to do an accelerator. I wish in theory I'd have done it, even though I had business experience before and I had the ability to build a team and I had infrastructure and I even had some investment. I think what I didn't, I underestimated was what accelerators or having the right kind of VC investor means is it's good, what they call signaling. That for me is one of the biggest frustrations I have is that it's it's an entire industry that's essentially adopted behaviors from the banking industry. So it's finance 2.0, which includes all the bad behaviors. It doesn't just include gender bias in terms of investment strategies and a lack of understanding of female markets and a kind of lack of focus on them. It also includes harassment kind of judgment you know no male founder is going to go for a drink with a potential investor and worry whether or not they're going to get asked out on a date and so there are lots of different areas of that industry that thankfully are changing and actually I think COVID had a positive effect on because everyone's on Zoom so it's harder because you still have to go and do all the networking and it's all digital which can be exhausting but also there is the added value of neutralizing slightly some of the more predatory behavior that can happen behind the scenes, which is a real thing. So I think the landscape in 2017 is a different landscape to the 2020 landscape, 2021 landscape we have, but there is a huge way for the industry to go. I do think that that is changing. And one of the biggest other pieces of advice along with accelerator programs is the worst piece of advice I had early was from lots of investors saying, don't worry about making revenue. You're a tech business. You need to just focus on building audiences and building great technologies. Don't think about a revenue model. And, you know, I took that advice and I I, I adopted it. I think that was the wrong advice. And I think especially for female founders, because the bias is women don't think commercially. So your big barrier is the fact that as a woman, you're having to prove that you don't just think creatively and you can build a brilliant business and you can have a lovely team who will like each other and like working for you. you your bias is that you're, are you going to be able to make money? Because Men look at women and think, you're a great marketeer, you're a great HR director, you'd make a great C-suite person to help me do my great thing, but are you a commercial visionary? So I took that feedback because it was coming not just from male investors, it was coming from female investors, like, you know, don't worry about revenue, don't worry about revenue. And I, you know, I spent a lot less time focused on our revenue model as early as I should have done. I should, we should have launched our revenue model, which is this subscription product to unlimited health and wellbeing fuel cycle, probably 12 months ago. But we didn't because <laughs> we had focused on the AI, the ML, we'd focused on, you know, we'd focused on building an incredibly good piece of data technology. And actually, in the end, no one really cared. So, yes. you know, that was, uh, and, I, and I say that really honestly, and I'm sure there are different experiences and every founder will have different experiences. But for me, if you can build a simple MVP product that proves your revenue product and, and the propensity for women to buy into your product and your services or your whatever it is you're building, that is the proof point really that's going to be able to get your product over the line with bigger investment quicker yeah thank you for for sharing your story and i I agree with you on the you know commercial side of things so i'd love to go back to you know i mean you needed money because you had to build technology you had to pay developers this is you know super expensive i mean you've raised uh, more than two million pounds and the last round you did was uh, a crowdfunding can you tell me like how you raise money i mean what's the difference between angels um, and crowdfunding for example and, and vcs So I wrote an article about this as well, actually, because it really was my, one of my biggest pet hates is when funders go, oh, I'm not sure about how you've done that. And it's like we have to change the reality that how women raise money is going to be non-traditional because this, the industry isn't set up to support yeah. women. And therefore, you're always going to end up bootstrapping in some way. I started with angel investors and angel investors have been an incredibly important support for us, but that is about having a network. So it takes, you know, it takes years to build a network, to be able to build relationships. And sometimes, you know, it might be better to do an accelerator to be able to almost kind of grow tack that and applying for as many accelerators as possible if you have a brilliant idea and a model, but even accelerators, you tend to need some kind of MVP proof point. So then there's also, you know, grant funding and you do have to be incredibly lateral I would call it in your thinking about where you get early funding and how you spend it is super key and the major thing is 
again, like I said, being able to say, I don't think there is any way you can raise money for a business that is wrong or a bad signal. It's just if you get to the end goal of being able to have a kind of proof point around this is a product women want, they need it, and they are willing to pay something for it, and this is how much they're willing to pay. And the model is either you've got you know a small audience paying a big amount of money or you've got a massive audience paying a small amount of money. Ours is massive audience, small amount of money per month to allow it to be a sustainable model because we don't want to ever sell data. So it's also how you want the ethics of your business. So for us, it was really important to raise money at the beginning because we never wanted to be in a position where we were selling data to make money. That was just, the, that, that's a quick way to make money, but it's not a sustainable way. And I also believe it's dangerous for women to have so much of this health data in our lives being sold to brands or to companies in a way which isn't, isn't advancing the experience of women. It's just identifying vulnerability so I think coming back to the the idea of funding there is no wrong or right answer angels are going to be individuals it's very emotionally driven money because they believe in your vision and your cause but it takes time to build a network crowdfunding is again hard to do if you don't have in tech so there's the best there's actually research done on this in terms of what are the best things to do crowdfunds for and if you have a physical product there's something like a I don't know a cat food <laughs> as a random example you know that kind of stuff goes really does really well on crowdfunding because people go oh i get a pack of my monthly subscription for my cat food and also this is a cool cat food company and i like cats and i'm happy to invest in this because i think it's going to be successful because i'm the consumer so the people that are investing in your product tend to be the people that are likely to be your consumer and then they like to have something so the challenge with technology in a space like that is you get the app and you get a subscription to the app, but we are eventually looking at other ways in which we can kind of build value for our customers and, and things for our customers. But at the moment, it is a completely digital product. So I think it, researching which channels and how to access them and the way that you access them is also really important. You know, the presentation that I would give to an angel investor is a different kind of presentation that I would put together for crowdfunding. And then you have VC and you have private equity, which is, the kind of the businesses that are making money from businesses. Now, there's a whole discussion that you can have around that model, but it's driven by, you know, money that has been accumulated by the fund founders or the partners. They, have, they then decide what they're going to invest in based on a 10x return. So they want to invest in businesses that are going to, you know, 10x the revenue that they current, the business has in the next 10 years. Yeah. So they are businesses in their own right. So each one will have a thesis, it will have a focus, it will have a, a, a set of values, but it will also have a group of people that are working on things they're interested in. So that becomes much more an extension of your team. So when you're taking institutional money, it becomes more of a, how am I extending and expanding this business to get to scale? So choosing the right kind of partners, they're much more involved because crowdfunding angels, they're not, I mean, you want to send a monthly update <laughs> to tell people what's going on and people might have questions occasionally, but they're not going to be digging into the granular detail of your business every month, unlike institutional capital, because it's their business to do that. They're investing you as a business. So it's also about the timing. Like, I think there was a real glorification of taking VC money. And, and I think that's quite dangerous because it's not really very well explained to people that if you take VC money, especially because female founders and female founder businesses is great, uh, very trendy at the moment for VCs. And the other big bugbear I have with that industry is I think it's brilliant and important and a very essential part of growth. But there's also a little bit of using women to talk about what they're doing rather than funding women. Because there hasn't been as many female founders funded and that's changing as well. And there's an amazing cohort of, you know, part, female partners in VC now. There is a, a watch out for female founders around being asked to do lots of panel discussions and lots of talks for funds or for organizations and then not raising the money from it. Because it's often that your voice can be very quickly appropriated for an idea that people want to advance the cause for women. But what have to change is the subconscious bias that's limiting their ability to actually put checks in in the bank you know what's going to change the cycle is more billion dollar exit from female founders and 
if you think about the cycle of that, we've only really been funding startups for the last 10, 15 years in the way that they are and female founders in the last five. So we've probably got another five years until we get the big billion dollar exit. And much like when Facebook and Google and all those spotty Silicon Valley boys wearing Converse started getting billion dollar valuations and every VC on the planet started looking for Silicon Valley, very like Converse wearing Zuckerberg lookalikes, you know, that that's where we're going to start to see the real change is when we see the billion dollar exit from women. So I know that's a slightly long winded explanation of both our own experiences and, and that of the industry, but I think it's, it's an exciting time to be a female founder, but it's also one to be conscious that I'd like for the industry to be more advanced and the world to be more advanced than it is, but there is still a lot of work to be done. Thank you so much for, you know, being so transparent and, and giving us like, you know, this amazing overview of, you know, different ways and, and why you should get funding and, and how you can do it. I mean, I always look to, you know, the US and there there's, you know, few founders that, you know, I've actually made a lot of money. So I'm thinking maybe, you know, Katrina Lake from, from Stitch Fix and, um, yeah. and, and Sarah Blakely from, from Spanx. And hopefully, you know, these women who start making a lot of money, they will then, you know, start investing in female founders. Yeah. Amy, I wanted to ask you something about raising money for, for your business as a founder is, is, is great. You know, it helps you carry on and, and, and work on your mission and deliver your, you know, work on your dreams. But what about you as a founder, like, you know, the topic of personal finances and money? I know it's a, it's a tricky one and, and often as a founder, you know, you're so passionate about your business. It's it's 100% of, you know, it's yourself. It's like your baby. So you're spending a lot of time, a lot of energy. I mean, what do you do to just maybe take a step back and think about, you know, yourself, your own future as something that can be also separate from, from Moody? So maybe in terms of, you know, making sure you pay yourself, making sure you save a little bit of money if, you know, something happens. I mean, are you doing that? And, and can you tell, tell me a little bit more about, um, yeah, your, your own financial story? Yeah, absolutely. And actually, it's really interesting. This is probably the first time I've ever been asked this question. And so where other things I have much more kind of roll of the tongue answers, it's like not roll of the tongue, but I, I'm very, I'm very confident and, and understand. <laughs> if you're happy to, if you're happy to yeah, answer no, no, it, no. of course. No, 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 of course. And um, I think, no, absolutely. I think it's really, really important. And it's also, you know, this is fundamentally what you, you do, but it's also really important. And it's very quick to dismiss yourself in these processes. So in, in honesty, there have been times where I haven't been able to take a salary from Moody because we've been, you know, end of runway, need to raise more money. Quickest way to do that is, you know, is, is to anyone to anywhere we can save money. And I was lucky in that I yeah. sold a business before. So I had some savings, you know, I did sell the agency and I was able to put that money into just basically, I put it into a savings account. I was able to buy a house when I had that business. So I had money in property. Yep. And I guess what it gave me was a safety net. Um, and having that safety net helped me feel secure in taking maybe some risks that I wouldn't have taken. Um, I appreciate that comes as a privilege, but it did come from careful, uh, you know, from previous success. You know, that wasn't given to me. I, I, I didn't come from money. I had, I had accumulated that through the previous business. I think what I've realized now is, I'm so grateful that I did that, but I have dismissed myself a lot in the financial journey on this. I will pay my engineers every single time over paying myself. And I think that was the other reason why when I got approached about doing a book, I did suddenly realize my vulnerability with the business being that when you throw your heart, your soul into something, what happens if it doesn't work? And it's a question that we all ignore. And I'd ignored it for probably two years. So I sold one business, did another, just kind of went blindly into it. Didn't even take a week break, which was very stupid. And, and I threw all my money, all my energy, everything at it. And, and then when I got asked to do the book, it was the first time at the beginning of 2019. And then it took a year for me to kind of get that going. So getting the deal. And as you said, we share a publisher and, you know, it's, it, it takes time, but it also forced me to look at my own career. And that's been quite pivotal for me because my career isn't, I, I much prefer to be 
in writing, <laughs> I've realized um, than talk about myself as an entrepreneur. And that's not because I don't think that being an entrepreneur is, is something that I am. Like I am not a writer. I run a business and I, I'm fundamentally, a C, I, I guess, a CEO. But the, the problem I have with entrepreneur is, as a badge is often it's indicative of, of just people that try things and don't get them anywhere. Like there's a kind of negative association to it as well. And so I realized I needed to have something which was, which gave me some cult, like cultural and also career credibility. And so writing and being able to write a book, which is essentially the Bible behind why you would use Moody and, and all the science that I've experienced gave me a new purpose. And it also gave me a new revenue stream because it, you know, that was the other thing that was interesting about the VC conversation. When I signed the deal and we did the book, you know, there was a lot of financial risk associated to Moody. I was, you know, I'd invested a lot of my own money. Um, you know, I, I wasn't taking a salary at the time because we had six months where we needed to, you know, drill down and focus on getting the revenue product to market. And so having the ability to do the book was also an opportunity for me to say, I know at the end of this, I will have something that will show my my input into this rather than just the app. <laughs> so financially, that means that I can begin to think about are there other ways that I can be supported by the business without having to draw down a salary all the time as well, which is the other important yeah. aspect because you have to be very nimble. I'm yet to have that part of this puzzle completely worked out, if I'm honest, <laughs> um, which is probably why when you asked me, I was like, interesting. But I do, I think it's a, it's an interesting thing and an important thing to think about. And I always say, whenever you're starting a business, if I'm ever asked about starting a business, don't forget that you are the driving force behind it. And if you are miserable, upset, stressed, and money, you're going to be time poor. But if also, if you're very, very money poor, it will begin to eat away at your ability to think clearly and make clear decisions. And it does, you know, money, stress, physically, mentally, it affects everything that you do. No, thank you, Amy. I have some quick fire questions. Uh, they're a bit lighter, so they should be easier to, <laughs> to answer. What is the best financial decision you've ever made? <laughs> I was, I'm going to tell you my immediate response that this is like really, but breaking up with my ex-boyfriend was probably the most important decision I ever made. And I, <laughs> that sounds awful, but I made a very poor financial decision, which was made off the back of being a hopeless romantic in that I put, I put an ex-boyfriend 50-50 on everything in my life, including my house, which I bought. And I didn't put a contract in place. I didn't do anything. And yeah. I had this beautiful vision. We were going to stay together forever and we were you know, going to settle down in this house. And that wasn't how it played out. And even though I ended the relationship, I didn't assume that it would be a point of contention based on the investment that was made. And so actually my best financial decision wasn't a decision at all. It was a learning and a lesson, which was always understand the investments you're making in things with other people and always have contracts and have agreements and have conversations, hard conversations about your financial value in any relationship. My best and worst was, you know, it, it was a, it was a, a really, really challenging couple of years and it took a long, long time. And being that we weren't married We'd been together a long time since we six years, but we weren't married and it became, you know, it was emotionally draining, it was stressful. So now my best financial decisions are around communication with anyone I am going into business or partnership or co-investment with um, in anything, whether yeah. it be, you know, booking a holiday right the way through to buying a house. <laughs> but, you know, it's such a big problem that we have to learn these things like through experiences And, mm. you know, we should be learning these things very early on school, university, first job, but just understanding, you know, the, you know, the, the financial, uh, you know, basics, emotions around money. These are, these are really important. And as a woman, you're not given that as well. That's the other thing I realized. I was really playing a very female gendered role in that relationship. And I was trying to continually protect his masculinity because I was higher earner. I had more like stake in, you know, I, I provide, I was the main provider of most things for a period of time and then I realized that it had a really you know it, that I was trying to protect his masculinity almost and that was a yeah. really silly thing to do what are the the things you spend the most money on at the moment surfing <laughs> oh, I love it I know well it used to be when I so I live I live in Lisbon um now and I used to when I lived in London and I lived in New York it was 
coffee, booze and clothes. And that was really tragic. And actually, one of the big things for me moving to Lisbon was we were able to make the business fully remote before COVID. And now, obviously, it's been really effective because of that. And for me, it was about investing money in the things which I love. And the problem is that I do love it, but I am kind of because I'm not spending money on clothes and coffee and going out and partying and things, I have realized I've become this kind of massive geek for kit. I mean, no one needs five wetsuits, just so we're really clear <laughs> at all. You need like three max for different weather conditions. You do not need five. So yeah, I'm, I'm bored. I've like only been surfing under a year and I'm not that good. And I already have three surfboards as well. So I'm like, I think, yeah, that's the most, the most money that I spend. I started surfing a few years ago and I agree with you, like, you know, wearing your wetsuit on the beach with your surfboard is such a good feeling. So it's worth (laughs) every every penny you spend on it. Exactly. And and finally, can I ask you, you know, what's, what's next for you and Moody? So we have some really exciting things that we're launching this year. We're launching some amazing cool products and which I will be able to reveal um, in the summer and really the book uh, is my main focus uh, now and helping get it as far and wide as possible because genuinely I know that you said very kindly that you really enjoyed it but I've had really I think it makes the science of this stuff really easy and accessible and if anything I just am more than happy to be a hormonal evangelist that if you can understand this stuff about yourself and if this becomes my core mission in life is to help as many women as I possibly can. And there are plenty of other amazing women doing similar things, but for me to just help as many women understand that they have all this power inside them. And then when you're able to actually harness it, you can literally become a superhero. Like you can be more optimal in your work. You can overcome barriers you can be happier in your relationships you can you know all all these things that we feel like we can't do all the time and actually your body gives you the power to be optimal so yeah there's some exciting business things happening this year with moody but also just more importantly long term like helping women better understand themselves is really the (laughs) crux of it so basically you should order moody uh (laughs) that's you know, your guide to hormones and how they can supercharge your life by Amy Thompson. I love it. You know, you don't need to read it in one go. You can just pick up a, you know, a chapter, read a few pages and keep this book for, you know, forever. You need the app, the Moody app, so you can go on the Apple Store. All the links are in the notes. Amy, can we find you on social media, uh, Instagram, maybe Twitter? Yeah, so um, Moody is Moody Month and then my personal handle is Amy T Story. Amy, such a pleasure to have this conversation. I'd, I'd love to come to <laughs> to Lisbon and, uh, and and meet you there for yeah. coffee when, when we can. Well, we'll surf. We can surf. It will be great. <laughs> we can surf. Well, <laughs> we can try to surf. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much and all the best with Moody, with the book. We'll be, you know, helping in any way we, we can and, and following, you know, your updates and what's, what's coming up for, for you. Perfect. Speak soon. Bye. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a couple of seconds to rate it on your favorite podcast platform. Also, don't forget to join our community on Instagram and Facebook and to subscribe to our newsletter on Vespot.com. Feel free to email me with your comments and questions over at emily at Vespot.com. Thank you. Speak to you soon.